This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. And we are your hosts, Martin Dyson and Brian Hoadley. For new listeners, each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Brian and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Martin and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations with minimal editing, allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. I had this hypothesis that if leaders embraced the qualities that designers have intrinsically, they're going to be incredibly great leaders. And that's change agency, risk-taking, using intuition, being a systems thinker, being people-centered and getting shit done, right? These are what design, Mm -hmm. these are our, these are our superpowers. And when you can apply those superpowers to the business context, get out of your head that it's design and get into your head that these are qualities that we bring to the table. When you bring those qualities to the table, you can make great things happen. Today, you're gonna hear a conversation between Brian, myself, and Maria Judis, co-author of Changemakers, which she wrote with Christopher Ireland. Maria and Christopher are both highly successful business leaders and design executives who have experience stepping up and into the world of executive leadership in organizations undergoing significant change and have navigated how to bring their own particular skills, mindsets, and superpowers from design into those spaces to successfully navigate complex problems. Changemakers is a book that sets out to inspire people of all backgrounds, career stage, and domain of work to be leaders of change. And at the heart of this book, are similar observations about the increasing complexity of the world that have inspired Brian and I to explore the liminal space. You'll hear Maria discuss the old models of leadership we need to let go of, the different styles of leadership women bring that we need to see much, much more of, and the perspectives that social activism bring to the balance of urgency and patience that is required to navigate complex change. For Brian and I, this episode has reminded us and inspired us to cast our net as wide as possible when exploring what liminal spaces are and who can show up as a leader in those spaces. So whether you are from our mothership of design or our wider audience of transformation and change makers, we hope there is something useful in this for all of you, exploring what it means to lead through complexity with impact. We'll drop you into that conversation now, right where I arrive late divine Brian and Maria already having far too good a time without me. It just set a tone for a wonderful conversation with Maria. Let's hear from her now. Information here, there's some that you might want to pick up, but I'm so excited to talk to you guys. This is fun already. It's fun fun already. Brian and I had a great chat and it was, I was like, almost felt like we should have been in a pub commiserating. <laughs> One of the things that we've said in our intro episode is that we're open to suggestions and feedback from people, like who should we talk to next. But we also are really looking for good cocktail recipes because <laughs> there's definitely a version of this podcast that is recorded in a bar mm. in our mind. <laughs> Over a martini. 
yeah. over a martini. Yeah. Which is kind of where most of these conversations started before pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, back in the <laughs> early days when I was running Hot Studio, you know, and mm-hmm. there was like going through through the course of Hot Studio, there were like three economic downturns. And mm. in those downturns, your competitors become your drinking buddies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, completely. We're all in this together. <laughs> exactly. I will fight to the death to win this job, which might put you out of a job, but we're still going to we're going to raise a glass because we know how hard this work is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, everybody's in it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you two had a really there. good chat before we before we got together today, I hear. We we did. We had a very good catch up the other week. It we're was, like best uh, friends now. We're, we're we're like you know we're we're, we're buddies. We're BFF. <laughs> well, I'll just play third wheel then throughout all of this conversation. That's fine. I'm used to. Oh, okay. and there's Martin. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, goodness. I'm Italian, so I'm used to like a table of people all talking at the same time. So I'm very comfortable with this. So Martin, just go in and interrupt anytime possible. Brilliant. Oh, it actually brings me to one thing. I would love to know how to properly pronounce (laughs) your last name. Judice. Maria Maria Judice. Judice. Oh, that's good to know. Well, I definitely butchered it earlier. Of course you did. Everybody did. Of course I did. It's okay. I think you put some real flair on it, though. I think it was Judice. I think I did say that. I just went like full on... The Italian pronunciation is Giudice. <laughs> Giudice. Giudice, sure. Oh, so that counts. Okay. You can be authentic if you'd like versus Brooklyn, <laughs> versus Brooklyn Italian pronunciation. <laughs> Both as authentic as each other. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's hard to know where to start with you. We um, can just go in anywhere uh, you want. Do you know, Open book here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's the insanely complex world in the subtitle that I just really attracts me mm. to change makers. That's and actually links directly to all of these conversations that require martinis. Uh, it is this idea of insanely complex world. It, has it always been so insanely complex? Is it getting more? Is it was there like a need for this book now? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the motivation for this. I mean, so many, Christopher and I like to say, this is the book we always wanted to write Mm -hmm. because it's creating books is, it's a real commitment. It's not like, it's like, hey, I want to spend three years, you know, sweating a project that ultimately really doesn't make any money, right? (laughs) Right. Like the core motivation (laughs) of books, there has to be a good motivation to do this book. And I am so passionate about this book because I really wanted to get this out in the world because I think the world is more interconnected and much more complex, right? And then when I started out like 40 years ago, the internet and the global connectedness of the world has complicated things. Systems have gotten a lot more complicated, right? Or more transparent, right? Because before then, it was very hard to connect, and 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 so the world is constantly getting more and more complex, which requires systems thinking, which is what designers bring to the world, good designers bring to the world. And I constantly keep thinking of design as designers having superpowers, right? And that was the inspiration for the third book I did, Rise of the DEO, which came out 10 years mm-hmm. ago. 
was I had this hypothesis that if leaders embraced the qualities that designers have intrinsically, they're going to be incredibly great leaders. And that's change agency, risk-taking, using intuition, being a systems thinker, being people-centered and getting shit done, right? These are what design, Mm -hmm. these are our, these are our superpowers. And when you can apply those superpowers to the business context, get out of your head that it's design and get into your head that these are qualities that we bring to the table. When you bring those qualities to the table, you can make great things happen. And so Rise of DO was this sort of provocation that, hey, designers, step up. You could be leaders. You could be CEOs with the superpowers you have. This is the same thing. This is sort of like next level leadership, which is designers, hey, you already have these qualities that you can apply to change at scale. And it requires new skills to be thinking like that but we already have it in our DNA. And so it, it, I, I saw this, so I had this sort of realization a couple of years ago when I was working as the VP of design at Autodesk. And I loved that job. And I came into that job with sort of the CEO and the chief product officer were attracted to hiring me because they knew that I could create cultural change in that company. And it's Autodesk is 35, 40 year old company that had very old products and they needed to evolve and they needed to, their products need to work better for people. And in order for products to work better for people, you have to, the company has to be people centered. And so I came in with that and I worked at a much higher level than I ever had before inside a company. And I think I had incredible success. I'm really proud of what I was able to accomplish, but my tenure was cut short when the CEO, Carl Best, stepped down and suddenly my shining star was like buried under, like six, was six feet under, right? It's like the new CEO is like, hey, I really appreciate everything you're doing, but you know, design is not really a priority, right? Which we know happens over and over again Mm. when we're working inside companies, when our champion or people in power decide that design isn't as important as you think it is, we the shit hits the fan. And so I got yeah. pushed out of Autodesk and it required it got me thinking about what did I do right, what did I do wrong? I was kind of learning on the job. And that's what got me curious about I'm gonna go talk to other people who've been in this situation. What do they do right? What do they do wrong? And so that we can actually create create something that like a legacy that we can leave to others so that they may or may not make the same mistakes. They'll have some foresight that we didn't have. So that was the inspiration of Changemakers, but it really came out of this idea that it's next level up leadership. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought was really interesting when you said that because- there's a, for me, there's this kind of, is it, oh, designers are really uniquely placed or more naturally placed with certain skills. And maybe it's an and, not an or. Or is it that others could adopt more of those mindsets and therefore be, what's the extent of 
Yeah. This is about design as a verb or design as a noun. Yeah. Right? So it feels to me like an Autodesk, they went, we don't need the noun yeah. anymore. Yeah. And then they lost the verb. They did lose the verb. The and I love what you said about noun versus verb because I use that all the time. And when I say designers, I'm not talking about classically trained designers with certificates. Yeah. I'm cool. talking about adopting design as a mindset and a strategy. And we are all inherently born creative. And some of us leverage that creativity as we get older very overtly. And some of us, our create their creativity comes out in different ways through different industries. And this is really about leveraging these qualities that humans inherently have and applying it in a more open-minded, creative mindset and strategy. So anybody can be a designer in this context. I think that's what struck me about the book was as I was going through it, I, at some point I kind of, I kind of let go of the idea that this is a designer out view yeah. and realized, actually, I'm starting to recognize people I've worked with over the years who weren't designers, designers, in inverted quotes, there, people, mm-hmm. and they, and, but they were people who were very creative in the way they approached problem solving. And they were people who kind of stood out in their teams or their areas. They weren't always necessarily leaders, but they were people who had kind of a unique combination of innate skill sets that allowed them to kind of see things with a certain clarity that that others didn't necessarily see. Yes. And so it really, I think by the time I got to the end, I was like, well, this isn't really, this isn't really necessarily a book about design leadership. There are a lot of design leadership books out there. This is a book about people who, who leverage these skill sets in, in very different roles, at very different levels of the hierarchy across their organizations. Mm-hmm. And it was really fascinating to, to think about it. Oh, way. thank you. Yeah. And it's quite intentional. And Christopher Ireland, my, my partner in crime, she and I have been working together for years and years. She was actually somebody that I looked up to when I was running Hot Studio. She had a company called Cheskin Research. It was one of the premier design research companies in the in Silicon Valley at the time. Her company was at pretty much as large as mine was. And she comes from an MBA background, right? So Christopher is a business person who has been successful in the design field. And I've been a design leader who's been successful in the business field. So we are constantly m- mashing those things up and that we're allowing people to leverage design powerfully in these contexts. Anybody can use these design tools if they're, if they are trained how to use them. And so that's, when we say design, it's, it's an invitation and anybody could be open to that. Same thing with leadership, I think. It's like, you don't have to, this isn't for VPs of design or VP roles. If you are somebody on a team or you're running a group or a thing in the in church, or you have family dynamics. These are tools that you can use no matter the context, because everybody can step up to be a leader at some point in time. Yeah, I think it was a really nice invitation at the beginning of the book for that to be like who this is for, and like, yeah. as any individual can be a change maker. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, we do need more of that and more of that but at the same time, there's 
one of the things that I think we're trying to explore with this idea of the liminal space that is change and transformation it, is that complexity. And I think one of the, Brian and I are looking specifically at large scale organizations, I mm-hmm. think mostly as opposed, to in, as opposed to individuals, although they are all a part of the system. Well, what are the conditions? And you alluded to this with Autodesk where the conditions changed, but what are the conditions and under which change makers can be effective? How much they need to push to create those, choose their conditions and the yes. timing. There's a lot in that where it can be quite frustrating to be a change maker or to yes. want to be a change maker. Right? Yeah, and I think you, yeah, you you alluded to that in the book where you know you you did talk about about the organization needing to be in the right place. Yes. For change makers to to really be effective, mm-hmm. I mean, I it's funny because there's <laughs> there's a part of me that embraces that after all the years mm-hmm. <laughs> engaging with incredibly difficult organizations. And I think, you know what, and I have, I think, gravitated now to saying that, that the organization needs to be in the right mindset in order for change to be effective, right? Mm-hmm. In order for them to pick it up and do something with it. And if you're the kind of individual who, if you land in the right environment, you're able to affect change and influence the environment and get people working together, collaborating and moving in a good direction. If you land in an organization where that's not the case, it's it's demotivating. It's it can be death by a thousand cuts, all within about three weeks. I mean, there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole host of things that we've all experienced in those organizations, and there's still a part of me that thinks because I still seem to go for those underdogs. I still seem to, for whatever reason, I still seem to go into those organizations that they're not in the right mindset, they're not in the right space. They want to do something. And there's a part of me that always thinks maybe this time, right? Maybe I'll be able to affect the change this time. And sometimes you make some change. Sometimes you make change in a way that you didn't anticipate. So you almost set off a sort of cascade of things that that evolve into something different than what you expected, but they're still beneficial to the organization, just not necessarily what you were there to do. Yeah, And sometimes it just doesn't work. But there's a part of me that feels that those organizations need it the most. And so if you if you don't go to those organizations because you don't feel they're in the right space, yeah, then how will they change? I mean, well, good points. And it's more like go in with your eyes wide open, right? Because it reminds me. When you were talking, Brian, I was thinking it's like when people like get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? And it's like, oh, I love this person so much. I love all these (laughs) things about this person, but these are the things I don't love. So I'm going to work really hard to change that person to be a different type of person, right? Right. And this is where like divorce happens because (laughs) you realize, oh my God, I can't mold this person to be somebody that I really want them to be. Right. So that came to mind for a minute. Right. But uh, honestly, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go into those organizations, but you should set your expectations properly. Right. Because a lot of us do go into those organizations with blinders on because we are so addicted and attracted to change. We inherently, as designers, design equals change. Nobody hires a design team to maintain the status quo, right? So it's part of us as change agents. We are like, it's like a drug addiction. The more screwed up the company, the more attracted we are, 
right? We are attracted to dysfunction because we love to, we want to see progress. We want to solve the problem, right? That's inherent in us. But you have to be realistic what the conditions are. You have to be real. Do you have an executive champion, right? Because when it gets hard, you will need somebody in power who's going to have your back, right? Because yeah. it, you are going to be going in and there will be people who will resist you, right? And you can try to turn those resistors into supporters. And there are a lot of techniques to do that. But there are certain resistors that will fight to the death to see you fail because they're so afraid of what you represent, right? So you need to have support. You need to have time right? This is the other issue we always have is that designers don't have enough time to do things or because a lot of stakeholders don't realize what it takes to actually make change happen or ship products at scale or whatever. But time is always a factor. Resources is always a factor. And so you're never going to have like the best conditions in the world, but you have to be realistic with what you have. And if you are going to be going into these organizations that aren't culturally ready and may not understand what design means and it's the power of design or any other domain excellence that you're bringing in. You need to know, you need to be satisfied with what progress you can make. And I often say this about one of the big takeaways about change is you're not going to hit a finish line. There is no finish line as a change maker. Nope. What success is progress and yeah. a lot of these things take years. If you're dealing with culture, it's going to take three, five, 10 years for culture change, right? To hit its stride. It's going to be ugly for a couple of years, right? And you may not be around for the full amount. You might be there for a year. You might be there for two years. What did you do in that time that you could be proud of that you left a marker for somebody else to then take and move down the field? And that's where you have to get satisfaction is in progress. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, yeah, all those things. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it, it took me a long time to get there, to get to that point where I, I realized, A, I needed to be more patient than I was when I was younger. And you're right. You have to calibrate your expectations when you go into a place. I, it kind of really forced me to also calibrate the kinds of things that I do uh, these days as a consultant, when I engage with clients. So now I try and do upfront, I try and engage by doing a capability assessment, which includes a degree of maturity mapping and things like that, just so that yeah. <laughs> I, I have an indication if there's kind of further engagement and there's there are things, I kind of know what I'm getting myself into mm -hmm. and landscape. And that's how I calibrate my my expectations about what I can or can't do under those circumstances. And I think the other thing about leaving something, you're right, we're not going to be there for the whole journey. No. These journeys, they are multi-year long journeys. And I've had engagements that were months. I've had engagements that were three years, a few years. And even then, I didn't see the end of the mm -hmm. journey. I left partway, midway through the journey. But I think the idea that you've, you've created some progress, you've created a bit of momentum, and those are some of the things that you leave behind, some of the different ways of thinking, different ways of engaging, communicating, collaborating. If other people have kind of picked those things up and learned them along the way, and they continue to do those things, it may be a long journey, but at least you feel like you've left something behind. You've planted seeds that right. people are able to do something with.
Yeah, and it, it's so powerful. Do, even if you've like changed, even if you've inspired and motivated one person, I, one of the things that give me that like have had a long career, but the thing that I feel that has been most satisfying for me, which is why I became a coach, was is when people come up to me and say, "Hey, I heard you speak at this conference," or you were working, I, I worked for you here, or I had this interaction with you. And the thing that you said changed my life. And I, I mean, I've had that with my own life story when I met Richard Saul Werman in college. And when he spoke to our class of seniors and he said, you're all full of shit. Design isn't about you. It's about helping people make sense of the world, paraphrasing. But that's what I heard. It was yeah. like a lightning bolt to the chest moment that put me on a trajectory for the rest of my life. And so it's very rewarding when you can have an impact like that on even a single person. Yeah, that's great. Because you are in fact a change maker because you are changing that person's life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really powerful. And and Rich and Richard's words are are really important as well. And I think it's something that as designers, we mostly take to heart, sometimes forget, but also at times is something that is at odds for us in a business context. Because our purpose, if you like, if you could generalize our purpose as designers, is often at odds with the generalized purpose of business, or perceived to be at least, where we are looking to solve problems for human beings in an impactful way. And I think that there's some kind of history with design, especially when you go back to enter product design and physical industrial design, where you could have that impact by producing something physical that would endure and, and get sold. And then we had this mass market ability to produce. And so my impact has spread. Yeah. Right. But now the means of production have, has changed mm -hmm. dramatically into both digital and policy mm -hmm. and organizations and people and the nature of what of what business is having to consider is changing as well yeah so all of this comes back around to me to kind of thinking about you you seem to tell a story about when you were at autodesk that you had this remit to affect cultural and organizational change which when you scaffold up like design's impact and where it can have impact i think it feel, it feels to me like that is ultimate when you let go of the deep craft of design but use the deep principles of it you end up impacting organizational change yes yeah and you had a remit for that and i've heard katie dill have a remit for mm -hmm. that at times i've heard rachel kibbots have and i've said her name wrong but i heard expedia talk about having that as well mm -hmm. and phil gilbert ibm had that and sean carney right had that but it's we. I can not name everybody five, gets five, that. <laughs> five people, right? Right. Um, across the FTSE one hundred and the mm -hmm. NY, the yeah. S and P five hundred, right? So, is there some relationship? And what's you been your observation of how business is changing? Yes. And what remit there is for this kind of transformation level? And does that have a relationship with? design now the team designs role or that back to that conversation about getting more designly mindsets in yes. other places because it feels like this is one of the one of the turning points like 
Absolutely. And like I said, the you can be a change maker at any level, right? So any of these concepts in the book can apply to wherever you are. You, you don't have to be in that like top 5% of people yeah. who actually get the privilege to be at a level of power like that, right? And that has fundamentally changed over the years. Like when I wrote Rise of the DO 10 years ago, it was a provocation that designers should be up there. But there were very few people who were operating at that level. And I, and I, still to this day, it takes enlightened leaders to recognize the value of bringing design at that, at a cultural higher level in the organization. So we're still a long way away where there's just small case studies of people who've been in positions like that. And so it's about progress. Every year, there are more and more diverse people in those levels of organization who are going to have an impact on the culture, who may not necessarily be just product profit focus. There's still going to be tons of organizations that are just going to be more profit driven and that their customers are second to profit, right? And I think that's where the cultural contradiction is for us, right? Because we put people first. And we assume that if we serve customers well, companies are going to make more money. And of, lot, of course, there's a lot of data around that to support it. But there are a lot of unenlightened business people who think they're serving the customers well, but they're, oh, at the end of the day, it's, it, they have more short-term thinking and they have more pressure. Like, let's be compassionate yeah. about those people who are in those positions. They have stakeholders where they don't even care about the company. It's all about like a return on your investment, right? So a large part of change-making and one of my big learnings from my experience has been we, we have fought that whole business argument for years and years. For years, we're like, designers don't get any respect. Businesses don't respect customers. Like we have a narrative that creates a bias where it's mm -hmm. an us versus them mentality. And yeah. if we can provide, if we can show the same amount of empathy and compassion to stakeholders who look at the world differently than us, then as we do with our customers, that's where you're going to get shared vision. And so in this an is where the systems thinking comes in, right? Right. And in an insanely complex world, the best you can hope for are shared goals. Yeah, Because you're always going to have people who are not going to agree with you 100%. So what is the mm -hmm. progress we can make based on what we agree? And oftentimes mm -hmm. in the business context, I know you, there's also a narrative. Designers need to speak business. I would argue we need to mul be multilingual, right? Mm -hmm. And remember saying words are very triggering? Yeah. Sometimes I say don't even use the word design because they don't, people don't even know what it means or they tell mm -hmm. their own story about it. But if you can mm -hmm. get to what are our core motivations, do we have the same goals in mind, even though we think there are different ways to get there? Yes. Let's start with our shared goals. You want to make money and we want to, and you want to make your customers happy, <laughs> right? We want you to make money so you can be more successful, so you can make your customers happy. We both want those things. Yeah. So let's start I, I, figuring out a language that is going to that uh, that's to get to that place. I used to have these conversations with people sometimes because I worked 
a lot in I worked a lot in banking post crisis, mm-hmm. and so I would have friends and just people in other industries say, "Oh, banks don't care about their customers." I was like, "Okay, so let's talk about these banks. There are ten thousand people in a building in in this city that, that I go and see every day, and I can tell you if I talk to any of them, they all actually really care about customers." Yeah. Okay, so if the company's made up of that, so people's intents are different from what their different their roles are, yes. what they're constrained by, what their pressures and things like that are. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Is it there is this thing, and it's why people latched on to customer centricity, if you like, for a while. And I don't think that's the right term, but because they're trying to go, well, don't we all agree on that? Mm-hmm. And we can agree on those things. And I think that drive for like designers understanding business is about understanding that. There are other things that your stakeholders and collaborators also care about, and you need to understand what those are. You absolutely do. That's the big thing. Brian, you're saying systems thinking. Yeah, this was sort of the big takeaway. One of the many many mistakes I made, right? And not just me, others as well, is we we finally get that seat or they're hiring designers and we rush in like it's like we're trying to save people from a burning building. We're here to save the day. We got the tools. We got the process. Design is in the building, right? And what we don't, we often forget that there's a whole bunch of people who are in that building who have seen these issues before, have tried and have been unsuccessful, or their good ideas were not heard, or they're just really tired of change. And we sort of neglect the what has happened before us, thinking we're the saviors. Yeah. And people have different relationships to change. Designers tend to be leapers. We tend to be those people who will leap to make change happen. And we're starters and we have this enthusiasm, right? But there are other types of change profiles in organizations, which are mentioned in the book. The second profile is called the bridge builder. A bridge builder is are those people who are kind of fence sitters. They want more information. They want data. They're not going to like agree to your energy and change until you can prove that you can be successful, right? So you, what's your strategy to get those people to become adopters? What do they need in order to believe that this is the right move? And then you have a whole bunch of people that we tend to ignore because they're pains in the asses. And those are the tradition holders, right? These are the people that we're like, oh, stick in the mud. They're never going to change. They just want everything to tank. They're the no people, right? We know all those no people, right? But okay, well, what's their core merit? Why are they so resistant to change? These are typically people who've been in organizations for years and years who are really care about the culture that they have created. And then you're going to have this young kid coming in and saying, we're going to change the culture. Imagine how triggering that is, right? So how do we get to understand those tradition holders? How do we get to respect them and the wisdom that they bring in and to share things that have worked or not worked or to understand what their core motivations are that that are going to help them be successful and recognized? So it becomes like a strategy map, right? And, yeah. and that's how you build supporters in organizations. But again, you're always going to have a people who are so afraid of what you're bringing in because maybe it's going to threaten their status or maybe it's going to threaten 
certainty. Maybe these people who really like certainty. So we have to be really compassionate and understand why they're scared. It's interesting because, and Martin, we've had this discussion <clears throat> quite a lot, <laughs> and and it's something I've written about. This sense of design and designers coming in and having that kind of vertical focus in the business, to, we need to take a rocket ship to the top of the organization, right? Yeah. And I maintain that designers should go horizontal. Right. And disintermediate the craft from the underlying skills, right? Mm -hmm. So the tools and the method, the techniques and things that they use to deliver the craft, right? right? Because those things are actually of value to other people in the business. And if a designer wants to learn about the business, and you mentioned designers having to learn business, right? Well, you can start early, actually. And if you use your skills to, to help HR run a workshop around yeah. things that they're doing, maybe they're doing some systems transformation in their team or or maybe finance, you know, putting right. in a new system and they need to understand the requirements and how people are going to engage with it and work with it. You have a design team who have all these skills that they would use to do similar things to deliver products and services for their customers, right? But right. they're not using them to help people in their organization. And the surest way to expose to design to people in the organization is to be helpful, to, to provide right. value, Right. And for you can be you can be a change maker at that level, and as a team member, you can be a change maker just by going out and doing some of that work in your organization. Yeah. And it not only helps that other team, but it helps that other team to understand the value that design is bringing to the table. Maybe if finance start to see you helping them with things they have next time a budget request goes in, right? No, <laughs> for designs. It's again, it's like shared values, shared goals, shared vision. And I, I'm a hundred percent agree. Like I loved like reaching out to people in legal, right? Yeah. Legal is the inherent no people, right? But, and people who are on customer service calls, the more that you can reach out and across the aisle, first of all, you're going to build support as an influence and you're going to be able to, you're giving them an invitation to unlock their creativity where Oftentimes they really want to be creative, but they don't have permission, right? Yeah, so you can yeah. allow people to, you can give them tools so that they can start thinking creatively in their own domain space. And this is how you build influence and you build support. And again, you become a change maker in their world. Yeah, completely. I mean, the, the amount uh, of times over the years that, 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 I've, I inadvertently, so it wasn't until I, I was older and a little bit mature and could see the impacts and effects of these things. But earlier in my career, the amount of times that I would do that sort of thing where I would run a workshop with a team and then somebody in that team who was a real go-getter would, would learn those techniques and those tools and then they would be running workshops. I, I'd be walking past their area and there they are facilitating the same kind of workshop that, that I had run for them. And now they've picked up those skills. And those yeah. are the moments, I think, that are really... When you can walk around your organization and start to see the impacts and effects of the things that, that you have helped other people to expose to other people, I suppose. Mm. That, to me, is as satisfying as seeing right. a product go to market, right? Yeah. That's different. I just want to check it's, in um, with Martin, see if he has anything no, to it, say. Brian no, and I, was, I are like... I, are like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was it was just something you said there about about unlocking people's creativity. One of the 
coolest things for me i mean it sounds like i'm gonna sound like a royal geek now when i say this i think was cool i i remember distinctly quite early on in my career working with barclays bank and we were doing a big transformation program and there was a lot of front-end design on staff systems and we had prototypical stuff in front of members of staff and we brought customers in and we role-played the whole thing with the prototype i i remember we invited in the learning and development and training and compliance people and they said we never see this stuff. We see this stuff once it's built and then it's handed over to us four weeks before our bit starts. And they were seeing it six months early. And they said it was absolutely transformational for them to just to even just see it and be aware, let alone to have an opportunity to provide comment and go, yeah, I see how this user is using this system and they're going to try and get around it because they're used to, they don't want to change. So now I know how mm. I need to train this and, you know, what we need to do for performance. And I said, brilliant. So risk and compliance and training were kind of saw early doors stuff. I cut to like four or five years later, and I went back into engage with Barclays again. And I, I found risk and compliance people on product teams. They'd been seconded and they were in product development. Mm. And, and they were like, and I, some of the people I'd been dealing with before, and I was like, wow, so now you're on a product team. It's like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't have to be the checker now. I'm not the risk compliance checker. We're like building this thing from the scratch mm -hmm. to be, to work within our risk rails and within our compliance mm -hmm. rails. They were being super creative about how they do risk. They were involved in the creativity of making new things as opposed to checking things once they've been built and then just complaining about the fact that right. they fit, right? Yeah. And cut forward another two or three years and you see Barclays really putting things out to market faster. Yes, but so back to it's a little bit brian like i'm not drawing a direct line between the usability session i did eight years before that and Barclays going faster to market there were lots of other things going on and loads of really like senior leaders who came in to try and make barclays work faster mm -hmm. and do some really kind of things that broke things from the traditional perspective but is that the thing about it, it takes time it does take time. And layers of different types of change from different yes. types of people willing to build off of a one person provoked this and then another person provoked this. And then we keep going on that. Is there something that's at odds with the, the still quarterly, yearly speed and cycle of return on investment in businesses versus your observations of what it takes to make change, which is bit by bit. It's not always top down straight away unless you're lucky to have that bit by bit and over time. How have you seen that tension between the way business is actually It depends on the business, itself? right? It depends on the business. It depends on the economy at the time too, right? When people are afraid or the economy is less certain, businesses' characteristics and culture change, they become less, they become more risk adverse, right? So being paying attention to sort of the cultural context is going to be important because again, it will fundamentally scare people. And so certainty is a trigger. When things are uncertain in the business world, it really scares the shit out of people, right? <laughs> Where for us, uncertainty is like a main ingredient for the work that we do. I've seen businesses of all flavors, you know, from like scrappy startups to really old, mature businesses that they change and evolve depending on the leaders of the time. Again, the, that, that executive sponsor is so critical, right? I mean, when you think about IBM 
as an example, right? With Phil Gilbert and he had a relationship with the CEO. The CEO saw, he, she saw that she noticed that his little world, he had shipped something that for a specific customer that was, was transformational for that segment. She saw that little kernel of thing that he did. Wasn't a big thing. It's a little thing. She saw that and she said, I want more of that. How do I get more of that in the company? Right? And then he's like, well, if you commit to hiring a thousand designers in a year, I will put a program together and get people to scale. I mean, he basically put it out there, but he had to prove, he had to prove his case. And she yeah. saw that. She had the intellectual curiosity to, to try it out. And it took three to five years for IBM to, they did hire a thousand designers in a year and they did create a design thinking program and it did have an impact, but that was, I don't know, five years ago now. And IBM is in a different place with different leaders. So the people who are in positions of power who in the design world have different challenges than Phil had, because now they have a different leader who has a different relationship to change and risk. So you're going to, it's going to ebb and flow. It's cyclical and it's going to be dependent on whether or not you're going to have leaders who embrace innovation and want and see the link that when you are innovative and you take risks, it's going to yield good results. But if people are scared and they're going to be short-term thinkers and reward be rewarded for short-term thinking, yeah. you have to understand yeah. that core motivation, right? And again, it comes mm -hmm. back down. What is possible within the context that's within my control in the cultural context that I'm in? So there's a, I mean, you mentioned compassion and there's, a, there's also, it seems to be a kind of a situational awareness. Yeah. So perhaps I we were doing a podcast a year and a half ago, Business by Design, and it was really pushing on understanding business. And I think it was good. It was go right for the time. But I think you, you're expressing it further than that, mm -hmm. further than just having business language. It's about situational awareness. It's the of, foundation of the for success, is. conditions, the structural openness of the company. And yeah. it's going to change, yeah. right? It will change while you are in it. And it's fluid and it's human. And you're going to get people who are going to be in a growth mindset and you're going to be in people who are going to be in a closed mindset. And it's really going to be dependent on, are you talking to somebody who's using like, who, who is using creative part of the brain, or you're talking to somebody who's fight, flight, or freeze response. And they're going to show up very differently. When people are scared, they show up differently. They behave differently. I wanted to ask you also about, because I, I recognize that the great call in your book is that we all have this ability to be a change maker in each of our own individual ways. But I was also reflecting on the the ambition that we've been talking about to, to have impactful change within an organization. Some of the ambition sat behind the remit that you had in your role at Autodesk and the others that we've mentioned. And the need to be able to kind of, and you said to be compassionate to other people's priorities, their stakeholders, their, the things that are driving them. To what extent do you feel like, so I've also been looking at the generalists okay. and how generalists have impact, mm -hmm. right? 
are des- are designers of the future going to be a kind of a new form of generalist where they're going to have a using their designerly superpower mindsets but applying it across a generalist set of skills so you wouldn't necessarily recognize them as a designer but they know in their heart i'm wondering about that relationship between generalists yeah. and designers i think you're going to have both you came across that you're going to have both depending on what gives you positive life energy right there's some yeah, people yeah. who are specialists in what they do and they geek out and they go deep and they are they care about the details and we need those people right we need yep. those people in our lives that really are like i'm only going to focus on this one thing this is my world my husband's like that right and i have incredible appreciation for that person who can go deep and then you're going to get people who get life energy by going broad so i'm one of those people who i'm i got monkey mind i'm interested in so many things i'm interested in this and that and this but i've always lived with the mantra treat everything like a design problem. I, I, got a de- I got a degree in fine art. I went to art school. I learned graphic design in school. I came out as a graphic designer. And I then went on to run a very successful business. I didn't have a business. I didn't get trained as a business person, right? And the internet came and we all learned on the job there. What has always been a guidepost for me is this the superpower, coming back to this idea of the superpower. Here's my superpower, and I look at everything as a design problem that has to be solved. I get curious. I do research. I prototype. I try things. I use failure as a way of learning. These are like the fundamental things that designers have, and that really has guided me to be a generalist. To say, oh, yeah, I don't know anything about this, but if I employ curiosity and I talk to people and I learn more, it's going to allow me to do that job. But again, you're going to get both. It's There's no, I have been a designer for over 35 years. I have seen it all. And when people are like, oh, my God, it's even <laughs> designers are going to become obsolete. Well, I heard yeah, the yeah. same thing when desktop publishing became a thing. Oh my God, Mac computers, designers will never have a job again because everybody can use PageMaker and Helvetica and Times New Roman. I heard that over and over again. I think engineers got scared in the multimedia days, right? Because when you were doing CD-ROMs, it was like you had to like beg engineers if this was possible because you didn't understand the technology. And then the internet came along and we can all use HTML and that kind of democratized things. And then engineers were felt like, oh shit, they know my world now. So we, we grow and we adapt, but that fundamental human quality that we have can be reapplied in new ways. If we can let go of what we think design is or who should we should be or the types of things we should make or the types of tools that we should be controlling got to let go of all that shit because we will always be able to use these superpowers in new contexts. Yeah. That, I mean, I didn't have a formal design education, but when I started to hear the words, the means of production, and when I started to understand how some of the designers in the seventies to the nineties that we kind of look up to had understood their connection to the manufacturing process, that's when I started to kind of go, Oh yeah. All right. We have a new means of production now, you know, what it means that companies output and what we do for people. That's where we've gone from 
physical production to websites to digital design to service design to systems design it's ele- it's elevating and and now there's ai uh, right so now that same now argument AI. oh my god ai is no more say goodbye to design systems well okay <laughs> maybe we don't have to worry about design systems anymore maybe that'll open us up to other things that well we could do so we don't have to create these like tools for engineers to use so it's like don't be afraid it's your role will change and you will find you'll find your place as the technology keeps changing but i mean you can tell us that you had chat gpt write the book yeah (laughs) yeah i would have (laughs) but you know even even though christopher ireland so christopher and i like i said we've been collaborators for years she is the writer Christopher's mm-hmm. writing is beautiful. I am I could write words, but she brings it to next level, right? And then mm-hmm. I have my own skills, right? I did all the research, I I put the content together, I control I worked with designer. It's like we are like a band. And so she we I know what skills she brings, I know what skills I bring, and together we collaborate to make something great. Yeah. So even if Jack GPT wrote this book, I don't think it would be as beautiful and as eloquent as Christopher Island. No. Because her work absolutely. is poetic. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Poetic. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a thing of art. Her right words are a thing of beauty in my mind. Hmm. Oh, Brian, did I exhaust Brian, you? Brian, what a lovely sigh. No, you know, there's just... <laughs> I've got so many things going this, through my head right now. So much. This could be like you could do like you could do like five different podcasts with me. You could break it down. We, we, could, we do could this every oh week. God. We could we could do installments. I mean, there there are so many roads to go down. So many I know. I mean, I was thinking about this idea, Martin. Going back to what you were saying about generalists and like, it's funny when you think about an organism that's, that's going to go through a large organizational transformational change there's there can be a lot of focus on the leader right and is the leader that is in situ the right leader are they do they have the right requisite skill sets are they kind of a a kind of a steady state bau style leader or are they somebody who embraces change right yeah and and i was thinking about that as you guys were talking about the differences in 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 those skill sets and the types of people the types of skills that people at that level would have and then I was thinking, Maria, about what you were saying about your husband, for instance, is very deeply focused and mm-hmm. right, right down in the vertical. And I was thinking that I was thinking that probably successful transformation obviously needs a mix of both. And and I kind of wonder if the generalist change maker is better suited to be the figurehead because they have right. a lot of things to look across, right? As opposed to the as opposed to the very deeply focused mm-hmm. leader. Because I wonder if they would miss things by not looking broad, by not having that ability yeah. to kind of look across. And so therefore, I wonder if those kinds of things are what shape the uh-huh. type of leader that you would want in that circumstance. Right. But you would also want the other, because right. you would want to be able to say, I need you to go and look very deeply into X. Yeah. And so you need a mix of both of those kinds it, of people. It, it also depends on the context and the kind of change that you're leading, right? But... I would not argue, I wouldn't use the language generalist versus specialist here. I would use systems thinker. 
Yeah. Right. So okay. a systems thinker can go looks broadly across the system, right? And that's that is core to being a leader and a DEO and a designer in an insanely complex world. You you must be thinking about the system, or you're going to have unintended consequences that are going to screw up humanity, right? Which guess where yeah, we are yeah. now, right? So systems thinking, you have to look across the system and you have the ability to kind of go deep or work with experts who are deep. This is, nothing is done in a vacuum. It really comes down to, for any kind of leader to understand what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? Because you need them all. You need all of this. And so know what you can bring to the table and then bring in other people who are great at the things that you suck at. That's leadership. So right? I wonder I wonder if that's something that's I wonder if that's one of the big things that has changed over the last 10, 15 years is that 10, 15 years ago, we probably did talk about the generalist leader, right? Yeah. And with 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 systems design, systems thinking, all taking kind of coming into its own and mm-hmm. people becoming more aware of it and more aware of the complexity of the organizations and the ecosystems in which they operate. I wonder if that now changes the dialogue around the kind of leader. Right. And that's true. Like when we look at leadership over the years, it was sort of that rock star person in the corner. It was that one leader where everybody took direction from. Right. And there still are those kinds of people like hello, Elon Musk. Right. Karma is a bitch. Something will happen to that man at some point. <laughs> but but good to be boldly inclusive as a leader, right? And this is going to get, we're going to get more and more inclusive leaders as more diverse people enter leadership roles, right? When you, people who are underrepresentative, representative are going, their flavor is going to come into those leadership roles when they have representation, right? Women Ten, I know I'm, you can argue pro or con against this. Women look at leadership very differently than men do, right? And this is my perspective. Might not be true to others. But so you're going to get different flavors of leaders. And But our world is so, coming back to the complexity, nothing can be done in a vacuum anymore. Nothing can be done in yeah. a vacuum. So it requires us to be inclusive. It requires us to collaborate. And it requires us to have shared goals and that creates problems and it creates a lot of gifts. But I think that's the world, that's the world that we're living in now. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Had a, a lot of leaders that I've worked for who are women and the only thing that has in any way stopped them is some other middle-aged white dude above them yeah but their leadership has always been i've learned everything i've learned about leadership ah well i mean when i started out from women not men when i started out (laughs) simple as that when i started out running hot studio there's very few women leaders that's why christopher became a mentor to me i was like wow look at this badass woman but there were very Mm -hmm. few i competed in a world full of male leaders and we could have a whole podcast on that but I then used, because I was a tomboy growing up, I always had the, I'm, I can show you, I can be better than you, right? And so I always looked at being a woman as a competitive advantage. And in fact, it allowed me to attract amazingly talented, diverse people to Hot Studio, which 
really not only had an impact on the work that we did, but it, it had a great culture and it was one of the one of the factors why we got acquired by Facebook. I had an incredible diverse crew of people and I created a really it, what, included, inclusive culture and that attracts other people who want to be in that culture. So I think the fact is the world has always been diverse. Diversity has not been represented right. or honored or served, mm-hmm. right? But as it now is being more served and increasingly and as complexity is increasing, there is zero way, I think, that you can lead through homogeneity in a world that is complex, right? And in a world that is now demanding representation for yes. diversity, right? You just can't lead through with homogeneity. It has to be. Yeah. A I mean, there's always going to be. Of thinking and everything as well, which is why this systems view is so important. Very, very true. And I, there's always going to be cultures where it is run by like arrogant white men. There, there will be that. Would they will not? Yep. They won't be dying off at least in my lifetime. But but there's going to be more and more different types of leaders coming in. Yep. Again, this is a long game, and it's going to change the yeah. way we operate and change we work, and it adds complexity. But it's going to be better. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the things I think is. The hopefulness I take, especially from the book, but also from this conversation and other conversations we're having, is that even though it might feel like the world is about to change on a dime and everything's moving so quickly, there it is a complex world. So there, there isn't anything you can do that I can do tomorrow to stop the world or to change the direction of the world. And maybe not even the day after or maybe not even the day after that or the week after that, or the month after that. But that doesn't mean that you should be giving up any hope of being able to be a change maker. And I think you've given a roadmap and a route for people to be those change makers. And then there is the patience to know that change layers up as different people experience it and as you meet and encounter other change mm-hmm. makers. I think one of the Gordian knots that Brian and I get ourselves in when we're talking about liminal leadership is like, what's the answer? Also because we're men and Mm -hmm. we like to solve things like now. (laughs) I find I'm always being told, stop being such a man and trying to solve it. (laughs) What? But there is that sense of like, I want to solve this idea of liminal leadership now. But there's also like this patience of the world has been through this before. It has, it just, it feels different to you or it feels like it does to you now because you are where you are now. But there's a kind of, there's a longevity and a bit of patience to this which I think are wise words, Maria. Thank you. Well, we have a, I'm, I belong to this activist group in the U.S. called Flip the Vote. And one of our mantras is hope is a discipline. And cool. interviewing social activists for this book and seeing how the struggle where, you know, if you are a social activist, you, there's so much struggle in making progress happen and there's progress, but there are, oh, there's setbacks. And sometimes it could feel like you're going backwards uh-huh. instead of forwards, but that is the cycle. Sometimes you will go backwards, but yeah. then you will go forward yeah. and the goalpost will move again. And so we just have to lean into the hope and focus on what is in with our own control because it's very easy to get hopeless around the things that are not within your control. But you can't solve those. That's that's very true. I was involved in a lot of social activism in the late 80s, early 90s in Boston. And and that that sense of one step forward, 10 steps back. Yeah. 
Yeah. Three steps forward, seven steps back. Mm-hmm. But you had to take your victories where you got them, and uh, and you had and to kind believe of believe in it. You, you had to. You had to. You had to. You had to have a backbone of belief that got you through yeah. the whole thing. I mean, I don't think that's so dissimilar. The things that we're talking about here, you have to. I, I think you have to have that kind of core set of beliefs in yourself about the things that you do, and about about social interaction, how things change and the nature of change and how things are connected. And there's a level of patience. I mean, we talk about how everything is kind of, Martin, you were saying things have layered up in terms of design over the years till we get to sort of a systems thinking point of view. I mean, it takes the level of maturity that we have (laughs) in having done it for as long as we have and getting there. I mean, I would love to say that 30 years ago, I got all this stuff. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I didn't. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I was learning all the things that got me to the point where I'm starting to get all of this stuff. <laughs> I still don't know it all. And, and it's interesting to see books like this now, because this is the sort of thing that if it had existed 30 years ago, I still might have read it, but not quite gotten it as because of where I was at you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of in, in terms of life, career, and maybe in terms of where we were at in terms of maturity of our of, of our discipline, right? And maturity of organizations and seeing all the change that's come about. Martin, you said at the beginning, is this, is this book right for now? Is it, is it the right thing for now? And it kind of feels like I can say that it's right for now because of where I'm at. <laughs> but then I wonder if somebody 30 years younger would see it the way I might've seen it 30 years ago, or if things have come on enough that they would look at that yeah. and recognize their organizations and people in the organizations. And they would think, yeah, I see that. What I would want to see this be is a call to people who feel kind of disempowered because they feel like they're not leaders, right? But they're yeah. somewhere mm-hmm. down in the organization and they keep saying, they keep asking themselves, well, what impact can I make, right? Yeah. I'd want to see them kind of pick something like this and go, actually, I th- there are things I can do, right? Yeah. There's, I could go in tomorrow and I could start doing some of this stuff and I could start engaging with people in my organization in a different way. And I could start looking at things a little bit differently. And maybe I can start having more impact than I realized I could, right? Rather yeah. than waiting for it to happen, right? That is beautiful. You're, I'm going to have, I'm going to make you go on the road because you got it. But I totally see that. And I'm speaking, I'm, I was at Uber yesterday. I'm going to go to Salesforce today. I'm speaking to people who are at least 30 years 30 or more years younger than me now. And they just, they're asking a different set of questions for the context that they're in. But the techniques up can apply to where they're at, right? So yeah, I and that is my hope that people don't see this and go, oh, that's not me. I'm not in the 5% of people who are running cultural change at scale. But mm-hmm. you can apply the same thing. You could identify who the leapers, bridge builders, and tradition holders are in your group. You could look and see how am I, how are these people triggered and what is my strategy to make sure that I'm, that I undetrigger them so I can actually have a creative conversation, right? Yep. There's, there's a lot of things here. They just ask the questions in a different way yep. that is yeah. in the, in, according to their own worldview. And I think when I was asking before about is this book necessary now, I was kind of more thinking, has it been born out of a necessity now? And it, it absolutely is relevant now. And I feel like it 
I feel like yours and I have to say some other people who've been writing as well, like Cheryl Kababa, who's been writing and closing the loop, mm-hmm. helping designers understand systems thinking. Matt, Matt Wonkinson, who's written Mastering Uncertainty. There's a lot of things coming out right now. And Brian and I are trying to explore what liminal leadership means, because now is a time at which it feels like because of some things that have been going on in the world, everybody is a lot more aware of implicitly the systems that are going on in the world. They don't necessarily understand that is what is happening, right? But you are providing a road, a kind of route roadmap for people to become more involved in change. Cheryl's kind of showing designers how to look at systems thinking as a skill inside their thing. And Matt is talking about about that idea of uncertainty. Everybody's starting from that place of the world is insanely complex. It always has been, but it's been it's been in the academic sense of the world mm-hmm. that people have been able to see that. It's only been in the academic side. It's been these global events that have pulled everybody together yes. to get some shared sense of urgency. And now they're looking for guidance. And I think your book is one of those great pieces of guidance for people so thank you for writing it thank you martin (laughs) thank you for that and thanks so much for spending this time with us discussing all of this i mean it's i'm i think our listeners are going to absolutely love to hear about all of this from you brian and i are trying to explore this idea of liminal leadership so for us this is also research for us as well yeah kind of trying to talk to other people who've been trying to navigate this space and understand what you've come and come to understand and dosed in with a lot of really great therapy for all of us (laughs) yeah (laughs) i agree yes i mean interviewing people it's very cathartic when you because then you say oh it's not just me i'm not just struggling here i'm not just seeing this i wasn't the only person who made this mistake so selfishly i needed that catharsis when i left autodesk (laughs) and then it became a book but i really enjoyed this and i was telling brian i'm going to be in England this fall at a bunch of conferences. Ah. I'm going to be speaking at Leading Design and World Usability Congress. And I would love to go and have raise a glass with you guys. And, oh, brilliant. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. More than one glass. Okay. That would be really great. I'd love to chance to continue the conversation and also we'll get into designing some cocktails together, working out what we're going to have. That sounds great, but you guys have been so much fun (laughs) and it's been really fun and delightful. Well, we really appreciate your time. I mean, it's a great book and wonderful author. Thank you. And if you uh, do love the book, please leave an Amazon review because Amazon reviews help a lot. Absolutely. Well, being an author, I get that. Yes. So I will definitely be leaving a review. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that goes to everybody else listening as well we'll put the details of the book in the show notes you can get across and find that but of course you can just go and search on amazon for change makers yes. and get that book and leave that review for maria well maria thank you very much we're at time now it's been great thank you so much oh for so us. great thank you and so have a good much rest of your day. it's delightful oh thank you we really appreciate it thanks for listening to liminal leaders We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners, hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com.
Thank you for listening. 